was much quicker at 8.30, so I was up here ready before we were done. We are really grateful for the work of our Sunday school teachers in that work of making disciples the most important work that God has given the church of all the things he calls us to do. The main one is to make disciples of every nation, and so we're grateful that each of us have an opportunity to do that. We are um, finishing our sermon series today on Jesus' healing touch. We've looked at healing stories from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and today we're looking at a story from John's Gospel, John chapter 5. It's on page 890, if you want to turn there to follow along. Um, Before we begin, I just want to say that this is the end of our sermon series. Next week, as I mentioned, we're having a special Miracle Sunday in our worship service, and then next Sunday also at that Sunday school hour at 9 o'clock, there's going to be a class beginning that's going to be looking at more miracles of Jesus. That's going to meet in the parlor. So if, you're, if you've been intrigued by this and you um, want to learn more, there's going to be opportunities in the weeks to come, even if we're going to shift to begin preaching on other texts. Um, so be aware of that. Our passage this morning comes from John chapter 5. Uh, let me in, pray for us and pray for the Holy Spirit's illumination as we hear and read God's word together. Let's pray. Loving God, we're thankful that you are faithful in your word, that it always returns to you, accomplishing, having accomplished the purpose for which you sent it. So we pray that you would make us open and ready to hear you this morning, that even as your word is read, we would hear your voice speaking to us as we think on these things. We pray for your spirit's illumination, that you would help us to understand not only the message of the scripture, but the message of your Holy Spirit speaking through the scripture into our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5, I invite you to hear now the word of the Lord. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up. Take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as we look at this last uh, healing text for our sermon series, I think that this passage throws up in bold relief um, two major dangers of the spiritual life. It also shows us a deeper problem that these two dangers share, and then a deeper solution to that deeper problem. And that's where we're going this morning in this passage about a healing at the pool at Bethesda. Now, the closest I've ever been to a place like this healing pool in Bethesda, the one in Jerusalem, not the one down 355, of course, is when I made a pilgrimage of sorts of my own to Burbank, California, to wait with a gathered multitude of people who were, we were all sort of invalids in our own way, and we were hoping that we might be the fortunate one to get our big break by hitting it big on the price is right. I did not get the invitation from the angel, Bob Barker, to come on down, but I must say that as I read this passage, for, for whatever reason, that uh, experience of being on The Price is Right, I was just in the audience, I wasn't really in it, but uh, there are some parallels between these, believe it or not. And I think if you look at footnote four in your pew Bibles, you'll see that there are some manuscripts, uh, later manuscripts, that share with us um, some helpful background about a tradition at the time that explains what's going on at this pool by the Sheep Gate. This, these details probably weren't in John's original account, and so that's why they're a footnote, but they share with us that there was a belief at the time that um, this pool had healing properties, and that periodically the, the waters would be stirred, and an angel would come down and heal whoever was the first one to get in the pool. And you can see, we can see that that is the hope that this um, man is, who's been an invalid for 38 years, this is what he's banking on. So it's kind of not unlike the Burbank studio parking lot. This pool by the Sheep Gate was a place where people would go who were hoping that they might be the lucky one to catch a big break. Perhaps we might say, certainly in The Price is Right, but probably here as well, there's a kind of optimism even in the midst of recognizing need. And this is where we find Jesus and a man who had been an invalid for 38 years, who, we're told, has already been lying there a long time. And when we get there, Jesus says, uh, walks up to this man and asks what, to me, sounds like a rather insensitive question. He goes up and says, uh, do you want to be healed? So, if I were one of Jesus' um, advisors... I would have pulled him aside at this point, and I would have said, um, Jesus, he's been here a long time. This is the pool, the sheepsgate pool, where people come to be healed. He uh, obviously needs help. Can't, can you just kind of put two and two together without asking this awkward question? But in truth, Jesus' question is incredibly insightful. Do you want to be healed? I think the thing that Jesus knew that most of us forget is that not everyone is aware of their need, and not everybody wants to be healed. Even at a place where there are people going through the motions of a kind of spiritual optimism, there is this danger of understanding life in in an overly simplistic way, that if I just get this or that, then 
the problems in my life will be solved. There are ways of understanding life that I kind of imagine as, uh, as spiritually optimistic lives that don't recognize the depth of our need. And so we think to ourselves, well, you know, there, things aren't perfect in my life, but there's nothing really seriously wrong. And, um, you know, talk, like, talk about sin, that's a very old-fashioned idea. Nobody talks about that anymore. What we need is some good advice. We need a couple tweaks. We need something here and there. Maybe head down to, the, to that healing pool, and uh, we'll find what, to, what we need to fix what ails us there. I think this is generally the message of the world and our culture, that everything is fine. I mean, nobody's perfect, we can all improve, but nothing is seriously wrong with us. And I think this kind of naive spiritual optimism ultimately denies our need for healing. And it's because this is so prevalent that Jesus has the audacity to ask a man who's at the healing pool, who is paralyzed, he has the audacity to ask him, well, do you want to be healed? That question assumes that there is something seriously wrong and is calling out the confession that there is something seriously wrong. The question itself is whether is asking whether we are aware of our, the depth and profundity of our need and whether we want to be changed. Now, it's interesting. The man's answer is kind of strange and ambiguous. He just starts to explain why he hasn't already been healed. But Jesus heals him with a word. And I think this is a, a way of showing that this um, story about the healing at the sheepskate was probably more superstition than anything else. Jesus heals, does, doesn't use the pool, he just heals with a word and immediately and says, get up, take up your mat, and walk. He is the healer. He is the one who is able to solve the problem of this paralysis. And it begins with this question, well, do you want to be healed? And so I think that's one of the dangers that we have shown before us in this passage, kind of depicted, is that there's a kind of spiritual optimism that underestimates the depth of our need. But the passage goes on, the story goes on to show that that's not the only danger there is. There's another danger, and that happens after the healing. It's kind of the other side of the pendulum. If we swing to the other side, we move from a sort of lazy spiritual optimism to an overbearing, harsh religious legalism. And that's what we encounter after Jesus heals them. And it's just as serious. This man who has been lying on the mat for 38 years gets up and starts walking around, and in this amazing instance of missing the point, all of the religious leaders say, hey, it's the Sabbath. You're not supposed to be carrying your mat. Now here's the thing we have to remember. When we read of the religious leaders, the Pharisees, who John usually just calls the Jews when he's referring to the religious leaders, most of the time when we read them, we think, well, how could they be so mean? How could they be so cruel? But in reality, I think that the Pharisees, stay with me on this, I think the Pharisees are usually the characters in the story that most closely resemble us. What I mean by that is this. Historically, the Pharisees, they were the serious ones in terms of the seriousness of their faith. They were responsible. They were hardworking. They were conscientious. They were trying hard to make sure they followed God's law. They were trying to please God and be obedient. 
And so they indeed built up this kind of superstructure of other rules and regulations, but the charitable way to understand what they were trying to do is help people understand how to obey the law that God had given and provide sort of guide rails and guidance on how to make sure you don't break, for example, the commandment not to work on the Sabbath. Just like today, when we hear the command, don't work on the, you know, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, and on that day you shall not labor, we think, well, what actually counts as work, right? That's what we start asking. Well, what does this actually practically mean? Well, the Pharisees and leaders started answering that question practically, and they came up with this list of, I think, 39 different categories of work in an effort, I think, if we're being charitable, of helping people obey that commandment. We don't usually think of the Pharisees this way, but I think it's true that they, were, they had good intentions. And so the very, very important lesson for responsible, conscientious, hardworking religious people is that our good intentions can lead us into very unpleasant places, this danger of legalism. They were trying to help, but they ended up proud, legalistic, oppressive, and harsh because that's how it works when you're simply trying to manage behavior and not experience the change that God can bring in our hearts. So these good people reveal to us how being good people does not free us from the problems of sin. It doesn't justify us. In fact, it actually has a tendency of leading us when we're trying really hard to be good and we're trying to do the right thing. It leads us towards self-righteousness eventually, and it We end up forgetting our dependence, and we miss out, just as they do here in this passage, we miss out on the miracle of God's grace. I also just want to notice a couple, note a couple other things parenthetically, and one is that these responsible, hardworking, religious people like us who are missing out on the miracle because they're so concerned with following the rules, it's not that they are Bible thumpers, right? The problem is that they've added to what the Bible teaches, and they've created extra rules. So it's not like they were just, you know, mean um, Bible beaters. They, They weren't paying close enough attention to the freedom that is found in God's Word as well. All they see is someone breaking one of their rules, not a biblical command, not an injunction. Those we need to be, we need to pay attention to, but this was rather a human expectation. And this is Again, not just a problem of like Judaism at Jesus' time. It's not just a problem of Christians today. It's actually a universal problem for religious people and unreligious people. And I was thinking about this because tomorrow, uh, well, later this week, not tomorrow, but my sister's getting married, and so we're flying out to Boulder, Colorado, where we grew up. And uh, Boulder, Colorado, if you've never been there, is one of the most spiritually open-minded and simultaneously moralistic places you've ever been. Now, it's a, it's a surprising kind of uh, Pharisee that you find in Boulder because for them, it's fine if you smoke all the weed you want, right? It's actually legal there now. But if you don't recycle that plastic bottle <laughs> that you just had organic, you know, juice in, then you have committed a very grave sin. And... We're laughing about it, but it's actually true. There's a different kind of morality that's at play, and there are different enforcers of those realities. So it's not just a religious problem. Even people who have no interest in religion are, uh, because, of, because we are all uh, 
created in the image of God and designed to worship, we end up worshiping something. And it's either going to be God or it's going to be a false God like ourselves or our culture or our preferences or our social expectations. We will worship and we will try to abide by that standard and we will notice when other people fall short of that standard. So it's just an inescapable human problem that the way we do things around here causes us to bend towards judgmentalism and limits our ability to see the miraculous working of God around us. So we've got in this passage so far, we've lifted up two dangers that we see kind of operating as Jesus heals this man. We have the danger of, one danger of the spiritual life is naive optimism, where even when we're kind of going through the motions of, uh, of sort of we're going to the pool, we're trying to improve our lives, but we're not really aware of the depth of our need. And that's what Jesus uh, calls out when he asks the question. We also have this other problem of moral legalism where we miss the reality of grace. If one blinds us to the reality of sin in our lives, the other, legalism, can blind us to the reality of grace. We don't even notice that someone's been healed because we're so concerned about our expectations. Now, the irony about this is that both of these are actually different versions of the same problem, which is our desire to justify ourselves. The, the spiritual optimist says, well, I don't really need healing. Uh, I mean, I need a little bit of improvement, but I don't really need healing. I'm, I'm fine, pretty much fine. And the moral legalist justifies himself by saying, well, I've really done and actually a, a lot of good things. And uh, I follow the law pretty well. And so I think I'm fine. And so both miss the deeper problem and the deeper solution of the gospel. We see the deeper problem emerge after Jesus encounters the man in the temple. So it says in verse uh, 12, they start asking him, well, who was this that told you that you could carry your, your mat on the Sabbath? And the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. And afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. It's very, another very interesting phrase. See, you are well. Sin no more, so that nothing worse may happen to you. Apparently, Jesus thinks that there is something worse than being paralyzed for 38 years and that is to be happily and healthily pursuing a life that is contrary to God's plan. Or we might say, to be living a life that continues in sin. Jesus says to this man, I healed you. See, you're well. But now, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The thing we don't like to admit to ourselves is that sin is often something that, though it seems desirable, is very bad for us. Bad things happen as a result of sin, which is not to say that every bad thing that has ever happened to you is the result of your sin. But sin does tend to lead us down a path of self-destruction, and the treacherous nature of sin is that it doesn't seem like it at the time. At the time, it actually often seems like we're doing a good thing. We're making a good decision. Ancient theologians used to describe sin as being curved in on yourself. And so you're tending to your own needs and you're noticing what's happening in your own life, but you are curved in on yourself. You're, you're, you're not free. You're captive. You're not living a full life. It's a diminished life. 
And I think this is what Jesus is describing. A life of sin, according to Jesus, can lead to a condition worse than paralysis. The spiritual optimist is blind to the reality of sin. The moral legalist is blind to the reality of grace. But both are curved in on themselves, seeking to justify themselves, paralyzed by this deeper problem of sin. And so what do we do? Where, what's the way out of this? If it's not found in sort of relaxed spiritual optimism or strict religious moralism, if it's not found in the waters of the pool, whatever the modern-day version of this is, or in the traditions of men, since these actually spring from the same root, where do we go? Well, at the end of our passage... We find that the man goes and tells the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And we read that this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. And then John says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Not not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is why the Jews were seeking to kill him. The only way out of the paralysis of sin and self-justification, whether of the optimistic or legalistic kind, is through an encounter with Jesus because of who he is, because he is doing the same work as his Father, because he is equal with God. The only way out is to acknowledge our paralysis, to receive his healing and his restoration, and then to seek by his power to turn from our sin, So we find the questions before us today are really not that different than the questions that face, uh, that we are reading of in our passage. First question is, do you want to get well? Do we want to be healed? Are we aware, open to God showing us the depth of our need? William Barclay says, Jesus comes to us and asks, do you really want to be changed? If in our inmost hearts we are well content to stay as we are, There can be no change for us. So do we want to be healed? And then what is this sin that we need to turn from today that nothing worse might happen to us? It could just be one of these two dangers that we have talked about. Maybe we're spiritual optimists who minimize our need in order to justify ourselves. Or maybe we're moral legalists justifying ourselves by a list of all the good things that we've done. There is healing for both. There is healing for all of us in this deeper promise of the gospel. And that is to acknowledge the glorious and paradoxical truth of the gospel, as Tim Keller puts it, that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared to believe. And at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Do you see how that addresses both problems? To the, to the uh, spiritual optimist, we're reminded that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we would ever believe. And then to the moral legalist, we're told, at the very same time, we are loved and accepted in Jesus Christ more than we ever dared hope. The first sets us free from the paralysis of optimism. The second sets us free from the paralysis of legalism. Embracing the full gospel takes us when we're paralyzed, curved in on ourselves by sin, and opens us up to God and to the world and to our neighbor, conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ, his son, by his grace.
And so the healing that we're looking for does not come from the two primary um, solutions that the world offers. It doesn't come through sort of optimistic superstition, self-help. It doesn't come through the crowd's legalistic tradition following the rules. It comes from Jesus, who calls God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Do you want to get well? Let us pray. Lord, we pray that you would, by your Spirit, open us up to the depth of our need and the depth of your love and provision in Jesus Christ. Save us from these errors of optimism and legalism and turn our eyes and the eyes of our heart to your Son, Jesus Christ, that we might find our hope in him and none other. We pray in his name. Amen. I invite you to stand and sing our hymn of response. The bulletin says it's 267. It's actually 276. Let's stand and sing together. Mm-hmm.